0: Welcome to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. It's December 1st, 2020.
1: I don't care for cruel
0: Our show is Needing a Space for Us, part two of our exploration of social rights as human rights. We're opening with the song Us by The Call from the 1997 release To Heaven and Back. Once again, we're joined by Kimberly Brownlee, to talk about the necessity of social rights being rock bottom human rights. We need each other and we need to be needed so that we might become fully human. But I care about
1: love and I care about truth and I care about trust and I care about you and I care about.
0: Last week, we discussed how social rights should have priority as human rights in the same way that food and water do, and how the right to be recognized and supported as humans in communities of care should trump individual rights of association, which is to say, the duty to care has priority over the right to be free. And further, that social deprivation, most obvious perhaps in the case of solitary confinement in prisons, is not only a moral wrong, but a deep violation of our human rights. Today's conversation ranges from permissible forms of exclusion to morally wrong associations, which may still be necessary for our well being. But I care about love. To the ways prison, immigration policy, and healthcare in the U.S. share the same kinds of degrading language and institutional traffics, and what that says about this society. I
1: care about you. And I care about you.
0: Kimberly Brownlee is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Her most recent book is Being Sure of Each Other, an essay on social rights and freedoms. And she's also the author of Conscience and Convictions: the Case for Civil Disobedience, both published by Oxford University Press.
1: I don't care for this manipulation. I care about love And I care about truth And I care about trust And I care about you And I care about
0: us And now, Needing a Space for Us Part 2 of our conversation with Kimberly Brownlee on Interchange on WFHB Kimberly, does one come to this work with political ideology as well? It's a question I meant to ask yesterday, and reading through some of the footnotes and, you know, some of the critiques back and forth that you kind of addressed throughout made me wonder about politics for people who write about human rights or rights in general, right? So we talked a little bit about liberalism. We talked a little bit, I think, about libertarianism, or at least you mention it in the book. Are these views of rights Do they come down in those places and then you begin to argue from those kinds of ideologies as well? Is there a radical view of human rights, a left view, a black radical view, a liberal view, conservative view, and so on?
2: I think the interesting thing about social rights is once you start to poke at them, they don't sit happily with any particular ideology, Mm -hmm. or at least not with the ideology that we typically bring to human rights talk. So, human rights talk typically starts with the thought that the individual person is the locus of moral concern. That means essentially that you know, it, it's your interests as a person, it's your freedoms, it's your claims, your entitlements as an individual that matter most. But when we start looking at at social rights, we, we see just, just how deeply interconnected we are and how big some of the tensions can be, the conflicts between your freedom, uh, to have privacy, someone else's right to know, your freedom to decide with whom you associate, which we talked a bit about last time, and someone else's right to be protected, right to be included. And even just how much your freedom to dissociate depends on someone else prioritizing your social needs. I think the, the other interesting thing about social rights is that they, they actually don't sit comfortably within the classifications philosophers and legal scholars typically use. So there's there's usually a, a line drawn between your civil and political rights, your right to vote, due process, and so on, and your socioeconomic rights, freedom uh, from poverty, education, health, and so on. But social rights, some of them are classed, classified as civil and political. So your right to marry, your right to... Associate those are viewed under the civil and political heading, but they are deeply social. Your right to practice your religion that includes practicing your religion in community with other people who are like-minded. When they're classified as civil and political, they've got legal force behind them. Uh, but I think what they actually do is they show that some of the sharp lines we want to draw between freedom and welfare, Um, you know, sort of stay off my rights or provide me with resources. Those distinctions are really hard to hold up. When we take these needs seriously,
0: you mentioned um, social uh, social rights in a, in a political space, and and one thing we struggle with here in Indiana, not just things like gay marriage or, or um, like the right to serve people as well. The contention, you know, is that you in a in a commerce situation or a trade situation, you have rights to not serve people. Right? This is the same thing that happens in terms of I think you mentioned this, or at least in passing, yesterday, the idea of not. Uh, performing an abortion, uh, so, you know, choosing to ignore someone else's rights to serve your particular religious perspective or, uh, again, uh, uh, your particular political I- uh, ideology as well.
2: So it's interesting. In, in many U.S. stores, you'll see a sign saying, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone. And that is potentially okay as long as someone else is willing to serve that person and not just one someone else you know 16 miles away but someone else where they don't have to take excessive steps in order to get their basic needs met Hmm. um so so there's a it's an interesting question of exclusivity who gets to say uh no you can't join our club no you can't have our resources no we won't work with you so one you know one really one case that was in the news uh, fairly recently was of a bakery that did not want to make a cake mm-hmm. uh, that had a same-sex couple on the top,
1: right.
2: and uh, and the question was, you know, was the baker within their rights not to align their work aesthetically with a type of relationship they didn't endorse? And one thing we might say is, okay, you know, bakers are quite different from firefighters. If a firefighter says, you know, I'm not going to put out the fire at the house. Of the same-sex couple. That's quite a different thing from I'm willing to sell you a cake, but just not a cake that has this image on it of a relationship I oppose. So in some ways, it's it's how deep is the need uh, that won't be met if I refuse to do my perform my service? And how easily could someone get that need met elsewhere? Private organizations, private clubs, you know, they they maybe need a bit more need to have a bit more leeway. But even then there's a question of okay, is this private space? a powerhouse for networking. In one of the big cases in the U.S. Um, involving the, the JCs, the question was, should women be permitted to join because this is an important business club? And you know, ultimately, that was the, the decision taken by the Supreme Court that women should be allowed to join. Because although this was ostensibly a private space, it was an important business space when we we're being denied access to.
0: If your particular service or the issue you're trying to exclude people from is perhaps less, you know, earth shattering in its, in, in its importance, but um, also could be replicated. Uh, by another service, perhaps, uh, is is called into question in terms of things like abortion rights, which, as you know, we we know in the United States has been further and further made difficult for many women to attain abortions simply by reducing the places that you can have an abortion. Uh, so one of the ways in which you sort of get around actually the law that allows you to do so.
2: So I think that the way abortion is dealt with in the United States is is very troubling. So not only is it typically you have to go to a very specific place, an abortion clinic, to receive this service, uh, but yes, these are there are fewer and fewer of such clinics available in many states. Women have to drive, you know, many many miles and hundreds of miles to get to a clinic, and then you're told, well, you have to wait 24 hours, you have to you know sign these various forms, you have to listen to a, a lecture on what's in your best interest, your whole set of restrictions and barriers and and speed bumps put in your way before you can exercise control over your body and in in other places this is this is not an issue you're not made to feel guilty for trying to exercise control over your body you're not forced to take excessive steps in order to access something to which you have a legal right and indeed a moral right, You're, it's simply, this is part of the ordinary healthcare system. This is what it means to respect women, women's reproductive rights, women's rights to have control over their body. And um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's a highly politicized issue in the United States. And there's injustice done, not just to the women trying to seek these services, but to the doctors and nurses and, and other medical professionals who are supporting them. Because when women, when fewer and fewer doctors are willing to perform this role, those who are willing have to pick up the slack. And this can, you know, it's not a, it's not a stress free type of service, partly because it is so politicized that, that those doctors who have to do this far more often than they otherwise would, they're bearing an additional burden. Uh, they're, because others are essentially free riding on their willingness to perform what is at the, at the moment, a legal right. The women have a legal right, uh, you know, under their under their the right to privacy to have access to abortion services.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to part two of our exploration of social rights as human rights with philosopher Kimberly Brownley, author of Being Sure of Each Other. We're talking about how the Western conception of human rights crosses cultures and universalizes duties of care and respect of persons, and how these underlying moral commitments must trump claims to individual freedoms. So, we've mentioned before, rights talk or rights theory is um, really a Western... Uh, conception, maybe, or the way we talk about it is Western or you know Northern European. Uh, yet, throughout, you know, we we generally talk about things being wrong, permissible, impermissible, moral, immoral. Is it possible that these these do carry across cultures and across other other spaces? You know, again, we you talked at the beginning about this idea of the person. You know, these are rights attached to persons, and I assume each person from any place has particular rights. You wanted to argue for rights for people, you'd be arguing for all people, but all people don't share the same views we share. Uh, how, how do we get around this when we're talking about rights?
2: Yeah, so that's one of the big worries about human rights talk, that it's ethnocentric, it's culturally imperialist, that it's a Western product, and that it's being sort of forced down the throats of other cultures who have different ways of carving up the moral and legal terrain. The it's It's... It's true that the the term human rights, that is a Western creation, and indeed that um, Eleanor Roosevelt played a role. Uh, so she was involved in the, in the drafting of the, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And during the drafting, a representative of one of the countries in, in the room said, um, because at that point when they were discussing the rights, they were called the rights of man. Mm-hmm. And this uh, representative said, I hope that you actually mean the rights of men. You know, if I I cannot go back to my country and say that these rights we're talking about are the rights of women, and so Eleanor Roosevelt and other key players t- changed the term. It, 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 no, these we are talking about the rights of women. We're talking about the rights of all human beings in uh, the Universal Declaration, and so so that language is is very much new language. It's Western language. It's it's American language, which is um, somewhat heartening. So the, the, the concept of human rights that, that is, that is young. Uh, that's, that's sort of 19, 1945, 1948 when the declaration was, uh, was signed. The idea of natural rights is much older. Um, you know, it's, it's not ancient, but it is older. John Locke, um, was highly influ- influential in, in shaping our understanding of natural rights. His thought was that, uh, our, our lives are, given to us in trust by God, that ultimately we, we belong to God, we are God's creation. And that as the trustees of these precious human lives, we have duties, uh, duties to take care of our own bodies and minds, duties to care about each other's bodies and minds, to duties to respect each other's life, liberty, um, access to resources, and, and so on. That idea of, of natural rights, that you can have a duty to another person because they're a person that is a cross cultural idea that is not a western idea many of our philosophies are are a little bit tribal uh, you know sort of this is how we respect the people within our circle not necessarily how we respect everyone and so that's the that's that universalizing push um, that's uh, in a way the the innovation in in rights talk rights theory but the the idea that we can have duties to each other because we're persons, um, even you know, just because we're members of the same set of persons, same tribe, that is an old idea. Um, and, and, it's, and it is a cross-cultural one. The, the language that's used in, in many places isn't quite as rigid, uh, but it has the same ultimate flavor. So, so in some Eastern philosophies, uh, Buddhism, for example, there's a commitment to certain ethical precepts. And one of those precepts is to not do harm, not to harm to others, not to speak unwisely. So not to injure others unnecessarily, uh, not to take intoxicants that are going to affect your thinking. So you might speak harmfully or you might act harmfully. And, and you know you can find this across moral theories, across cultures, that there, there are underlying moral commitments that have a common ring to them in terms of respecting each other, valuing each other and being appreciative that people can have claims upon each other to be treated well.
0: Rights and duties go together in a sense. uh, Generally, you're expressing there the uh, duty side of things more than anything else, that in in this way, when we talk about rights, we also necessarily talk about a relation of those rights to duties uh, to others. Um, So one doesn't necessarily be, you know, you can't necessarily claim a right unless you're claiming a particular relationship to your community, and to other people.
2: That's correct. So so rights don't exist without duties. That Rights correlate with duties. You can talk about duties without talking about rights. Um, and and uh, someone like Honora O'Neill, very well-known British philosopher, uh, she says, you know, in a way, we need to pay a bit more attention to the idea of a human duties movement than a human rights movement. Um, you know, we need to look at, you know, who, who are we giving the task of, securing these resources, protecting these freedoms, and, and so on. And so the concept of duty is 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 broader. You can talk about duties not to be wasteful, where there's, there's no particular person at the other end, no particular claimant who's saying, you know, respect my rights, uh, when we talk about duties not to be wasteful. You can have duties to be benevolent. Um, and so there's a contrast drawn in philosophy between what are called perfect duties uh where there's no wiggle room you know you have a duty not to kill someone your duty, uh, duty not to kill anyone duty not uh you know, to to assault or, or harm someone and then there are imperfect duties where you have some wiggle room in terms of how you satisfy them you know, there are many ways you might be benevolent many ways you might be charitable and so your duty to be benevolent gives you some space to honor it in, in different ways
0: Time for a break. This is Little Bit of Love by Free from the 1972 album Free at Last. Stay tuned for more with Kimberly Brownley on social rights as essential to human flourishing when Interchange returns. I
1: can't deny my inside cause I believe if you give a little bit
0: Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. This is part two of my conversation with Kimberly Brownlee, author of Being Sure of Each Other. In this segment, we'll explore the necessity of shared rest from work with our friends and family and how much of Wright's talk sounds a lot like the golden rule and the parable of the Good Samaritan. I wrote uh, throughout the book. I'd, I would underline something and say to myself, "This sounds a little bit like um, a socialist or communist perspective." And a couple of times, I actually, wrote the you, you know this reminded me of uh, Marx's uh, "From each according to their ability, to each according to their needs." Um, is there a conscious aspect of that for you in your work?
2: I don't think so. That that idea, I, I I could see how that would would show up. And and I think the "From each according to their abilities" element that that is meant to be. Uh, compassionate, Um, to recognize that what we can demand of ourselves and each other has to be responsive to what we're able to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that uh, what we owe to each other is also necessarily responsive to how we're built and what things can be asked of us. So in in the case of uh, social rights, if we're able-bodied, if we're mentally competent, uh, if we have decent social skills then no one has to provide us with a friend. You know, we have no human right to a friend, but we do have rights that we have good enough chances to meet people, to make friends, to keep friends, that we have enough money that we can be hospitable, you know, have someone over for dinner or buy them a gift on their birthday when they bought one for us on our birthday. Uh, that, that our social needs and our political needs and our economic needs are actually quite closely intertwined if our if our polity doesn't recognize a common rest period uh, then it's really hard for us to stay social if our polity doesn't give us ensure we have just you know a little bit of discretionary income very hard to be social there's a there's a wonderful a really fascinating case um, explored by the philosopher Julie Rose in her book free time. She, she talks about an experiment that the USSR tried out between 1929 and 1931. They did this for two years and then gave it up because they realized it really <laughs> was a bad idea. They, they adjusted people's work days so that they maintained constant productivity. So, you know, everyone sort of worked five days and got two days rest, but it wasn't... The same two days. And the problem was that people found this absolutely torturous because you know, the, the response was, well, what's the point of having a, a weekend or a you know, break when my kids are still in school and my spouse is still working, you know, right. having able to rest together. Right. That's the key thing for keeping our associations going. So they couldn't maintain it because you know economic productivity was plummeting in other ways because people were depressed and and despondent because they couldn't keep their ties going.
0: It certainly calls to mind our own issues with just-in-time employment and you know never knowing when you're going to be called onto the job or not and not having the ability to plan your your life because of those those issues.
2: So I think in the states that that's a big big problem that many people work two three jobs in order to make ends meet and many people commute for an hour or more you know in each direction to get to work and get home and uh, when you know just uh, linking back to what you're saying about there being perhaps a marxist shadow in some of my my writing there is there is an idea that our time should be such that we have 8 hours devoted to work 8 hours devoted to rest and sleep and 8 hours for what we will you know to yeah to 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 be with the family to you know pick up a hobby and if you're commuting an hour or more each day there and back to do your 8 hours of work your time for what you will is being radically truncated mm-hmm. and and with that Big costs for your freedom of association um, and many other goods that uh, that should be things we can take for granted.
0: There's really not a discussion of work in this particular book. I don't know if you take it up other places or we will take it up. Work being where many of us spend a lot of our time um, and where many of us have relationships. And they're difficult relationships often in the in terms of work environments because they're often in hierarchical spaces and trying to understand those contexts and social you know, friendship contexts in work as well uh, surely complicates a lot of these social rights issues.
2: Absolutely. Uh, the former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, uh, he wrote an article a few years ago in the Harvard Business Review on loneliness at work. You know, he points out that we spend more time with our work colleagues than we do with our families. Those associations, you know, as you say, are, are often unchosen. Um, you know, Who's put in the office next to you? Who's put in the cubicle next to you? Who's sitting next to you in the assembly line? Those are the people you spend the bulk of your time with. And there's important questions that workplaces need to address in terms of the reality of those semi-forced associations, you know, how to make them healthy, how to make them decent, how to make them in a way compensatory, you know, sort of picking up the slack when we would otherwise associate with chosen friends. Now, it's not the case that outside of work, we get to choose all the time who are, who, with whom we'll associate. Our neighbors are typically not chosen. You know, The people from whom we'll we'll borrow sugar, or really hope they'll come with a fire hose if you know if our house catches on fire. We don't pick them, and yet they're you know they're very important. They are, you know, they're a presence in our lives, and so again, you know, an important connection that we want to have some community support in order to, to make these associations work because they you know they are going to be a fundamental part of our social world. Who our neighbors are, who our um, fellow workers are.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to part two of our exploration of social rights as human rights with philosopher Kimberly Brownlee, author of Being Sure of Each Other. We're talking about how the Western conception of human rights crosses cultures and universalizes duties of care and respect of persons, and how these underlying moral commitments must trump claims to individual freedoms. Wondered, Kimberly, as I was reading, if if we could boil everything down simply to the golden rule and uh, the good Samaritan. You know, these these seem to be pretty basic ideas, right? Uh, the you know, I don't know if we need to complicate them or if they're necessary because of the complex world we live in. But these are kind of again standard things that we've been taught. And as you brought Buddhism and religion into this as well, this is not something that should surprise people. These relationships that we have with other people do have principles that guide us you know we need to assert the ability to be good to people the good samaritan is a good a good example here in your i think with your particular outlook here you have a duty to recognize the person who needs help in that particular story obviously
2: yeah no i, I like i like that idea i'm i'm not uh, i'm not allergic to to good samaritanism i think some think it's um that it's stepping into supererogation. if you start to you know, say people have good samaritan duties I would say, well, no that that you know that's beyond what we owe each other morally. You know that that's the virtuous person, that's admirable, but that's not a duty, or certainly not something that someone could assert as a right. But I think what's what's uh, really interesting is that some of the best parts of our relationships we cannot make sense of without rights talk. Um, so the philosopher John Tomasi's pointed this out that it's really hard to make sense of the idea of being generous without the idea of property, Pro- you know, property rights that you are then generous in sharing. It's hard to make sense of the idea of forgiveness without first having the idea of a debt uh, that someone has wronged you, someone has trod on your rights in some way, and you choose to forgive them. And you know, in forgiveness and generosity, these are these are key goods in family relations, in sort of healthiest social relations. And so I think there's a there's a place for rights, rights and duties, even when we're talking about things that are very admirable.
0: Let's move forward in the book a little bit. We've obviously touched on several of these things. There's one point where uh, earlier we were talking about perhaps the right to deny service. You might say, you know, the right to ignore somebody is okay as long as not everybody does so. I think this moves into your uh, maybe into your each we chapter, which is dilemmas of sociability.
2: I frame a lot of these problems as, as collective action problems. You know, we, we have duties collectively to care, to ensure, uh, that everyone gets their basic social needs met. Um, and, and so when, when it looks like someone is being shunned, uh, someone is being ignored, being left out by everybody else, then that collective action problem becomes a more directly personal problem. Um, one that you can't ignore anymore or, or at least can't satisfy by by doing your bit in terms of the collective part and there's a there's a really there's a wonderful book by uh, Vivian um, Gussin paley I'm hoping I'm saying her name correctly titled You Can't Say You Can't Play and uh, she's she was a MacArthur fellow um, she was a, an educational scholar and, and teacher and she decided because she had, a, she had a group of kindergarten kids that really she couldn't make things work. And so she, she couldn't figure out why there were three or four kids that were being regularly exiled, ostracized, you know, you know, the brunt of, of, of others, mistreatment. And so she decided to discuss with them and the other grades in her school what they thought about having a new rule. You cannot say you can't play. Uh, and what was very interesting was the the perspectives kids took on this. Um, so there were the the boss kids who did a lot of the excluding. Who you know, one of them said, "Well, what would be the point of playing uh, if we're you know, not allowed to you know decide who's in and who's out today?" Um, but there were there were other kids that were 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 very reflective reflective about it and thinking, "Okay, well, would people actually be?" Openheartedly heartedly inclusive if they were forced to play with someone um, or would it become mocking and belittling sort of including but not really including there were concerns about whether the the quality of the play might be affected you know certain kinds of play have you know about five people on each side playing a certain you know team sport you just maybe can't do those at the school playground it's a wonderful book it's actually a wonderful introduction to philosophy and the and question of distribution uh, you know, how do we distribute social goods? How much freedom should we curtail in the name of everybody getting enough? And she really shows this, how much this collective action problem of caring about whether everyone's included can become a, a personal problem, a personal decision when you're the one who has the power to include or exclude
0: it just continues to strike me as that freedom is a is not, not the best word or not not the right idea you know that you're working against this very idea that freedom m- means what it what we think it means about you know being able to to not have to be with other people i don't, it's i never thought of it that way generally it, as the more you talk about it is it is pretty fascinating that it turns out to be a, a right to really just exclude people and This idea of, you know, curtailing freedoms, you know, of course, in this country, again, sounds like the worst thing in the world you could do for people. But it's exactly the opposite. Or you're trying to say it's the opposite. It can be, obviously, onerous, I'm sure. But the ideas of how we work together, how we are together, how we're uh, teaching our children to be together uh, really have to do with how we are together and not how we are necessarily valorizing being apart.
2: A philosopher that I I really admired, Joseph Raz, he has this idea uh, called liberating duties, that actually when we are entwined with other people and we, we recognize that, we honor it, that is a fantastic source of value and meaning. Uh, we talked a bit about this last time with, in relation to the need to be needed. But his, his thought is that so many goods, so many avenues for interesting living only open up to us through relationship. Uh, And so in in terms of having freedom, you know, in the sense of having lots of choices, lots of interesting things to do and ways to live, having, having options in terms of that, he would say that, you know, you must embed yourself in connections with others. You know, many of those avenues won't be available if we don't recognize our duties to each other.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to part two of our exploration of social rights as human rights with philosopher Kimberly Brownlee, author of Being Sure of Each Other. We're talking about how the Western conception of human rights crosses cultures and universalizes duties of care and respect of persons, and how these underlying moral commitments must trump claims to individual freedoms. Let's move on then to uh, associational freedom, which uh, is a, the next chapter in the book, Chapter 6. What I like about this chapter in particular, what, what I felt was most interesting, is the idea of morally wrong associations. Associations can be good for people, even if they're bad associations. And so this is an interesting thing to, to, to talk about. You know, This is a morally wrong association to perhaps be with white supremacist groups, but maybe a good association for individual people on... On balance.
2: So I talked briefly in the book about um, the belongingness hypothesis. This is uh, defended by the psychologists uh, Roy Boymaster and Mark Leary in a very influential paper from 1995 on the need to belong. And there they say something even stronger uh, than than what you've just suggested. They they say that the, our fundamental need to belong, which they think can explain a lot of our behavior, our you know, our. Interest in status, our move to have power, our desire to matter—they think these are all manifestations of our need to belong. Uh, but they think that it can be met even in a gang. Uh, that, that this, that in a way, there's something neutral, morally neutral about the kinds of associations that can meet this need. I'm—I uh, take a slightly less radical view because morally troubling associations like gangs, they, they're going to come with, at best, hidden costs. Uh, you know, the, the behaviours expected to appease those in charge, the, the risk of being kicked out and suddenly you're the enemy and at the receiving end of their violence. Um, the, you know, the, the hierarchy, the, the brainwashing, all the, the dangers that come with gang membership show that this really isn't the place to get your need to belong met. That said... And this is this is the part where um, that you were referencing in my work. If your options are isolation or gang membership, you would be wise to choose gang membership. Um, you know, in, in prison, you're put into a crime, uh, well, often crime-ridden setting, but also a criminogenic setting, and you know, setting that's making it more likely you will commit crimes because your available community is made up of people who've also uh, been put in prison for having committed crimes. And, And of course, you're going to choose membership. You're going to choose status. You're going to choose inclusion. You're not going to exile yourself in order to you know, sort of stay stay away from what might be damaging or get you roped into a gang that then's gonna to lead to further further criminal behavior. We we need to belong. And um, I've talked to some some prison wardens who've said that you know when they uh, you know wave someone goodbye and, and send them on their way, they know that often that person's going to be back because in prison they're like everybody else. You know, they're accepted. There's nothing unique or weird about them for having a criminal record. Everyone else has got one. And also this community has become their family. These are now their friends. These are the only people who accept them uh, without worrying about that, that stigmatizing label. Yeah, you know, it sort of goes 75% of the way toward the Bowmeister and, and Leary idea that we have a fundamental need to belong um, and it's rational to meet this need in even in bad ways when that's the better choice than being
0: isolated. The idea is that, you know, things can be done wrong or have wrong origins that turn out to offer positives or social positives that then give someone claim rights within that sort of negative space or within that space where they've done something wrong.
2: Some of those associations we have that we have no right to form that should not exist, you know, a child marriage should not exist. Once they do exist, the moral ball game changes, and uh, and and that's really you know it's quite a it was quite a challenging idea to to think about the idea that you might actually be able to bootstrap yourself into relationship rights, um, and indeed that the wrongdoer. Might be able to bootstrap themselves into relationship rights, and the reason they can do that sometimes is that the interests have changed. So one case we could think about perhaps is is Beauty and the Beast. Beast absolutely should not have kidnapped. Well, he didn't kidnap Beauty, and at least in the Disney version, she she you know she goes into the castle to get her father out um, and agrees to a trade that he releases her father. Uh, the Beast releases her father if she agrees to stay. So she agrees to stay, but she's now essentially a prisoner. So Beast has no right to imprison Beauty. But over time, her interests change. So she's, uh, you know, her, her connection with her former community has been shaken, maybe not severed, but, you know, time is passing. She's beginning to build up a connection with the beast. Uh, she's becoming invested in this connection, and her interests are changing. And as a result of that, her claim rights are changing. She now has claim rights on, on the beast uh, to persist in this connection. A similar story you might tell, and, and this does happen, uh, there, there was a case in the U.S. where this happened, of, of a child in need of parenting. You know, the, the, the mother had disappeared, the father was in prison, and the neighbors sort of informally became the caregivers of, of a child. And over time, uh, you know, the child came to see the, the neighbors as you know, these were her parents. Uh, you know, they, they loved her, they cared for her, they you know, got her to school and so on. And then the father got out of prison and reasserted himself, wanted wanted to have um, custody and, and to to shut out the neighbors and indeed to say that the neighbors had kidnapped the child. But in in my view, the mall ball game had changed. Uh, and it was probably because of you know time had passed and those neighbors were in my mind now her parents they had rights they had moral rights that should have been recognized in law but they weren't. Uh, the father's rights the father prevailed and, and the daughter was returned to him. There was a wrong done not just to the little girl but to, to the people who'd been caring for her who had been serving as their parents. So the I think the sort of the moral messiness the idea is that when our interests change then we can have new rights on the table even when that's the product of serious wrongdoing.
0: It's time for another break. This is Frazee Ford with You're Not Free from her 2014 release, Indian Ocean. Stay with us for more on the ways our moral commitments, duties and responsibilities, Trump claims to individual freedoms when Interchange returns on WFHB.
1: You gotta get out to the country and leave your trouble, You're not free,
0: Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Needing a Space for Us, part two of my conversation with human rights philosopher Kimberly Brownlee. In this segment, we turn to the ways the prison system, immigration policy, and the healthcare system have much in common in the practice of degrading people to a less than human status. We did touch on prisons and mostly with essentialist language and it, it closes the book. Chapter eight is one on segregation, prisons, hospitals, immigration, things of that nature. It is one that makes the most ready sense to someone to say these are, these will be harms. Um, you know, keeping people apart, uh, giving them negative environments. Uh, the, as you mentioned, prisons already being, uh, places where there are lots of people, but not decent social opportunities uh, and the wrong opportunities if you want people not to be committing crimes. This is not a singular issue. Prisons are not the only place we're segregated. It's just kind of an easy one to see in stark relation to to, to someone's social deprivation. So uh, how else are we segregated? And we can talk about prisons, obviously, but uh, if you don't mind, explain the other, other ways we're segregated.
2: I'll say just one quick thing about prisons, that the way we Tend to run them in the United States, the UK, uh, Canada, to lesser lesser extent, Europe is not the only way to run them. So, so the United States, these are highly segregating institutions. For people in prison, access to outside communities that is the ultimate carrot and stick. I think prison guards, prison officials use that. They should not be using that as a carrot and stick. Access to family and outside communities that should be a guarantee, not a privilege you could lose. But in some places. Notably in, in Europe, uh, prison is not a fully segregating institution. So in, in Norway, there are weekend prisons. Um, you, you show up at prison on Friday evening, you stay over the weekend, you go back home on Monday morning, and you this enables you to keep your job, it enables you to keep your connection to your family, that it's not nearly as uh, isolating and um, privative as prison in Anglo-American society. So that that's one thing on prison. Uh, in other settings where we use segregation again the u.s context is interesting immigration horrible horrible stories about uh, you know over the last year or two in terms of how people are being held in immigration facilities and these are very similar to some of the worst kinds of prisons, um, and indeed, many of the corporations that administer prisons in the U.S. also administer immigration facilities and treat the people in their custody in similar ways. Um, you know, you're you're dressed in jumpsuits. Those jumpsuits track whether or not you're you're viewed as a suspect or for um, any kind of offense. Uh, there's available machinery to you know, to you know, use handcuffs, and you know that's held on display for people to see. These are block, cement block units that are, you know, families are separated. At the moment, there are over 500 children. This is a very big story in the US right now, over 545 children who don't know where their parents are because they were separated from them during the immigration process. People held in cages. The the way we practice immigration says a lot about a country and how, how welcoming it is as a community to new entrants. And so you can have the you know, the, the social conversation writ large when you look at immigration policies. There's a philosopher, Christopher Keith Wellman, who has argued that states have the same freedom of association that individuals have. So just as I, you know, I have a right to decide uh, the person I will marry or the religion I will practice, so too my state should have a right to decide who gets to come in and who doesn't. Even when the people trying to come in are in desperate need. And, and I think that is mistaken. First of all, you know, states, in the same way that you know we as individuals don't have nearly as much freedom of association as we might think we do, you know, we don't pick our parents, we don't pick our developmental setting, we don't pick if we have siblings or not, if we're raised in an institution, we don't pick our country or culture of origin. There's so much about our associational life that is is given to us. We don't get to make any choices about when we're young. Similarly, a state doesn't get to pick who its neighbors are. It doesn't get to decide, you know, whether it's going to border Mexico or Canada or other parts of Europe or so on. It doesn't get to pick its history or its geography, and it must confront those realities and acknowledge that immigrants are being excluded and that goods are being denied to them over which they have no control. So you know, you can only say these goods that we're holding exclusively to ourselves, um, you know that we're, we're justified in denying them to other people, you can only say that when those other people had some option to join um, or they have some at least equally good access to the same safety and resources and so on. But when you're holding goods that people are—you know, have no chance to access and they can't get equally good ones, then you're saying you're making an in, indefensible claim to exclusivity. So, so um, I've sort of said a big mouthful, but I, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of parallels in how the United States and, and some other countries practice punishment, immigration, um, immigration detention, and, and all of it sort of speaks poorly of how we behave socially.
0: I thought it was interesting that you brought uh, hospitals into this conversation. It's also a, a thing that I think many people find uh, horrifying, uh, but much of how they're constructed, much of how... Uh, care is given creates these segregation, se- segregated spaces or segregated ideas, even to say a patient, you know, even to say patient uh, is a way in which we, we create those divisions between a uh, caregiver and the one who needs care as well. But not just the, the language, but, you know, wearing the flimsy robe, you know, being in uh, difficult physical situations often without particular comforts, you know, lots of things that make hospitals not dissimilar. To prisons and immigration buildings.
2: No, that that's right. That uh, yeah, there's there's both visual and verbal signals that uh, you know, this person is is being dehumanized. Um, you know, in immigration, we use the language of, of alien. Um, in prison, we use the language of criminal offender. In in hospitals and healthcare, the language of patient. So these are people whose agency is being negated or, or denied in the language we use and then yes they're the visible markers there's the flimsy gown the jumpsuit the you know, the uniform which separates you from others and signals a, a lower a demoted status. I, I i in hospitals even you know, even now more so and you know and this is not a this is not a deliberate aim to to control the people in custody custody this is just a consequence which can be navigated more adroitly or not in relation to the the coronavirus, so there was a, a doctor in Toronto who was pushing for people in his care in hospital to have access to to tablets, to to iPads and iPhones, so they could see loved ones because you know they you know, there were no visitor rules, families weren't allowed to come in, and and so when when someone's dying alone from coronavirus, um, not to be able you know, for the family members not to be able to hold their hands, not to be able to to be present with them, to help them pass, to not to be able to grieve collectively. You know, those are huge costs to our social connections and our, our sense of worth as people on whom others can depend.
0: This is Interchange on WFHB. You're listening to part two of our exploration of social rights as human rights with philosopher Kimberly Brownlee, author of Being Sure of Each Other. We're talking about how the Western conception of human rights crosses cultures, and universalizes duties of care and respect of persons, and how these underlying moral commitments must trump claims to individual freedoms. Are you exploring this as a way to say the healthcare system is punitive on its visual face, on the way it treats patients, on, you know, it's not dissimilar in its punitive nature? What is that saying? What's that telling us?
2: I, th- I think one interesting thing about the coronavirus is how much it's highlighted that people who are in others' custody, in others' care, really depend on their caregivers to protect them. So, you know, the fact that there have been outbreaks in prison of coronavirus, so there's been a lot of outbreaks in care homes, that, that says something about the way we practice custody and caregiving. And, and, and yes, just briefly on the, on the visual aspect, there've been some activist efforts on, on the parts of unexpected groups. So, so, um, an association of architects in the U.S., uh, committed themselves to refuse to design maximum security prison blocks, uh, that they, you know, they would not let their services be, co- be co-opted to produce facilities that were essentially, you know, going to be subjecting people to torture. And, uh, and there's something interesting. You said about hospital design as well. That you know, maybe architects would do well to reflect on what are the features of their design, what are the social features of their design. Um, it'd be a useful test for designers. It does does my building enhance and support social needs, or does it set up a, a site where people are going to be going to be isolated, going to be restricted? Um, it's an interesting discussion in the UK for legislatures whether to have a loneliness test as part of any new policy design, and you might sort of transplant that into other professional communities, you know, does our work enhance sociability or does it thwart it? People designing parks and urban spaces, um, does it enhance it or does it thwart it?
0: So back in chapter four, and this is I know a long time ago, but there was an interesting point that actually you you reminded me of talking about nursing care or nursing homes, right? So you make uh, I think the point that in in society we can make a social claim or a social right that we should have care, we should be recognized as people, we have a right to that, but not a particular right to it, right? So that you make you make the point that the there has to be a way in which you know that need is met, even if we can't say that one particular person needs to make it. Then you point to the fact, but we also have to understand that we we might need to be aware of who's uh, meeting those needs or what institutions are meeting those needs, right? You say, I think, you know, if there is a group of hungry people, we don't want the the rotten fruit vendor to be the one who takes up that slack. Uh, so nursing care homes is one in particular uh, where so many of them are just for-profit uh, entities that have no interest in care, but the body and the bed is an economic widget.
2: This isn't a problem only in for-profit enterprises. So in, in prison, your cellmate may be an adequate source of social connection for you, but they might also be psychotic. They might be deeply pr- depressed and suicidal. And so, so in, it's, it's you know somewhat the equivalent of the, you know it's the rotten fruit vendor who's been right. supplied to you as a as a as a form of connection. The the problem, yeah, you know, it's it's it is tough when there's when there seems to be sort of few state resources. How do we fund these various enterprises? And I don't know if these things can be done cheaply. Uh, you know, just the, giving one example of social care in the in the UK. There's a social care system uh, where you know, people can receive support at home, and that care focuses on. You know, the, the, the weekly or twice weekly chat, um, you know, helping clean, tidy up the house and get the laundry done and do the meals. But the appreciation is it's the chat that matters. The problem is that care is not consistently provided by the same person. So you can, you can have, you know, week after week, someone new coming. And the problem for the person waiting for that visit is they, they're then, they have no joint narrative. They have no common history with whoever's coming. They're starting over socially again and again and again. And that's not just unsatisfactory. It can actually be a form of punishment to someone that they don't get to share any memories. You know, how's your daughter this week? Or did you get your car fixed? That, that, that so much of what's important in social goods is that they that they persist, that we can form a relationship And I'm guessing it it is more expensive, right, to ensure that the person coming week after week is the same. Even costs aside, there are also just some operational realities of state-provided care or or private-provided care, which cannot make up for individual love and contact. You know, state services, private services, priorities change, budgets fluctuate. Um, you know, personnel turnover. There, you can't be, you can't turn only to the state or to businesses. Sure to ensure these needs are met.
0: Yeah, well, it's not my intention to to push the state as the actor that makes a difference here. Obviously, you know, living in a capitalist country, um, you, know, you struggle against a particular worldview uh, that walks hand in hand with your, you know, our, our already our discussion about individualism and the difficulties in trying to frame a lot of these things as so, uh, social rights in a space that focuses on individualism and your freedom from other people for the most part. So mostly... Uh, I think we're confronted with, you know, a way in which we grow our minds and grow our social being that has that sort of works against all these things you're trying to to point out as rights, um, as things that we need to be giving to other people and caring for and to be loving about. You know, they don't have the same force in in a world where you're brought up to valorize other particular things. Yes. That's all I was trying to say.
2: I think you know, in terms of a little piece of optimism to take away, I'm hopeful that many of us are learning through the coronavirus experience to treasure uh, our, our social connections, uh, to, to appreciate those smiles on the street, to take that nod from the stranger as, as a jewel you know, to, to offer to others. Um, to to realize that that our social needs are indeed fundamentally important because it's only when we are confronted with it, it when it's only when it's made vivid to us and that, that unfortunately we seem to have a poverty of imagination it seems to be only when we live it that we really realize how fundamentally important something is even within a capitalist society there needs to be very significant space made for meeting our social needs.
0: That's our show. We'll close with Humankind, off of the 2001 album, Mobilize, by Grant Lee Phillips. Thanks to Kimberly Brownlee for spending so much time with us. Her short book, Being Sure of Each Other, tackles a big problem. How to get freedom-loving individualists to recognize that our duties to each other are more important than their right to be left alone. We'll include a link to part one of our conversation in the web post for this show. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.
1: If only humankind was not so heartless now, heartless now. It's hard to love your fellow man. However, can I help myself from heart and brain, such evil? And the reason of pain is clear. And the bliss All the riches to squander here If only humankind was not so selfish now Selfish now It's hard to love your fellow man However can I help myself From harboring such evil Heartless now Heartless now